0: Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today's podcast covers both Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, two men who went about solving social issues for the black community in very different ways and sometimes with conflict between the two men. Before we turn it over to our resident history buff, Gene Antonakis, we have a few sponsors that we would like to recognize. This podcast is brought to you in part by Keen Insights Internet Services. That's K-E-E-N-I-N-S-I-T-E-S dot com. Please visit their website for all of your marketing and digital media needs. Next, EliteBookEdits.com. Writing, writing, wherever it's wrong. Go see Elite book Edits and their editors for all of your book editing needs. Lastly, I want to throw in a little bit of a shameless plug for myself. I had a book called Unified Marketing Strategy published back in April of 2021. And that is for business owners, CEOs, or anybody that wants to learn about marketing, media, and the reasons why advertising works. Lastly, I finished a couple of screenplays during COVID that are going to be published in the next month or so. So be on the lookout for Immortals Revelations and The Naughty List. Immortals Revelations is about vampires who want to reveal themselves to the world and then things start going terribly wrong. And The Naughty List is a fun little Christmas romantic comedy where two people who are independently helping Santa get people off of The Naughty List are introduced to each other, and um, we have some fun along the way. Now, without any further ado, I want to bring in jean Ann Zanakis. jean An, take it away.
1: So, for black Americans in the post-Civil War era, while some rights had been given through the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, The Black Codes that had been passed in the Southern states drastically limited those rights. Furthering the progress and protecting the rights of Black Americans was left up to Black Americans. When Reconstruction ended in 1877, well before it should have ended, the federal government abandoned Black America. The federal government would not protect. The rights granted in the late 1860s and 1870s until the 1960s. So you have to understand that for a span of 100 years, nothing is really being enforced. In fact, you have certain state and local governments trying to roll back those protections With the end of Reconstruction by the 1880s, Frederick Douglass felt no group should have to rely on another to protect their rights. It will never happen. With the death of Frederick Douglass in 1895, two men emerged as leaders of the black American community. To understand why the lives and the works of Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois are so important, we have to look at the conditions of black Americans in the United States. A lot of the time when people talk about slavery in America, they tend to talk about it through the lens of, yes, slavery was bad. Yes, it was an evil institution but we don't do it anymore. We may not have slavery anymore, but we are still very much living with the consequences of slavery, with the consequences of Black Codes and of Jim Crow. Enslaved people were not allowed to learn how to read and how to write. Very few enslaved people knew how to read and write as a result of those laws. They were often taught on the low by their owners. So now when slavery was abolished, they are free, but where do they go? What can they do with that freedom? What skills do they have to support themselves, to support their families? How do they find their family that had been sold away or those who had run away in the hope of finding a better life? How do they live in the ashes of the South in the post-Civil War era? So these are all questions that you have to consider when thinking of this time period. The life and the work of both Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois were instrumental in helping to further the social, political, and economic conditions of black Americans Their ideas to help bring about equality to black Americans were not only different, but very much at odds with each other. Booker T. Washington was born into the institution of slavery. His mother was a slave to a Virginia tobacco planter owner, and he and his family were freed towards the end of the Civil War through the Emancipation Proclamation. He spent nine years as a slave. After his family was freed, Booker T. Washington was put to work in the salt mines. This was hard, laborious work. He longed to go to school, which he eventually was allowed to do. Booker T. Washington then went on to work as a house servant for a wealthy white family. His mother and his stepfather kept all of his earnings The wife of his employer taught him to read and allowed for him to attend school in the afternoon. You have to understand the drive that he had to learn. Even with having to work such long hours, whether it was in the salt mill or as a house servant, he made sure to complete his work so that he could go to school So, Booker T. Washington is known for his belief in industrial education. In 1871, Booker T. Washington traveled hundreds of miles, mostly by foot, and he worked along the way when he could so that he could earn some money. In his book, Up From Slavery, which if you haven't read it, it's wonderful, Washington describes how he overheard people talking about this institute. And he was determined to go there and learn. He arrived at the Hampton Institute and worked as a janitor there, helping to pay the school's tuition. He studied there for three years. The Hampton Institute was started by General Samuel Armstrong, who had served in the Union Army during the Civil War, fighting in a number of important battles, and he quickly rose up the ranks. He led a unit of black soldiers, which at the time was referred to as USCT or United States Colored Troops. His experience with training and working with black soldiers during the Civil War inspired him to join the Freedmen's Bureau and to also open up a school to educate black Americans. The Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute was created in 1868. In our podcast on social reform movements of the 1840s, we discussed the normal schools established by Horace Mann. This school was for the training of teachers and skilled labor. The goal was to create a steady supply of black educators who would then go and be able to teach other children and young adults the skills that they would need to prosper. This school is now known as Hampton University, and you can learn more about it by going to hamptonu.edu. Booker T. Washington was their most famous student and not only went on to teach at the Hampton Institute, but was hand-selected by General Armstrong to be the first principal of a new school that was being created in Alabama, a school known as Tuskegee Institute. So the young, determined man who traveled hundreds of miles for a chance at an education and arrived with 50 cents in his pocket was now going to be in charge of the new school. Tuskegee Institute in Alabama was created, well, it started out as an agreement between a former slave, a man by the name of Lewis Adams, and a man hoping to be reelected to the Alabama State Legislature. In exchange for helping to secure the black vote in the area, the state legislature would pass a bill creating a charter for what would become known as the Tuskegee Institute. Started by a former plantation owner and a former slave, Tuskegee Institute started off in a small building that when it rained, the water would pour in. And over time, would evolve and grow into one of the most important historically black colleges in the country. Booker T. Washington purchased a 100-acre plot of land that was once a former cotton plantation. So where once people were enslaved, now you have people who are getting educated. Over time, through donations from wealthy benefactors, the campus grew. Students at the Tuskegee Institute weren't just sitting in classrooms learning. They were out working on the campus, building the buildings, making the bricks, you know, farming to produce food for the students and the staff, all while acquiring these skill sets that would help them to prosper. The majority of the buildings on the campus were built by the students, Booker T. Washington stated that they wouldn't buy anything they couldn't make or build themselves. One of his most famous speeches was the Atlanta Compromise of 1895, and it was given at the Cotton States and International Exposition in Atlanta in 1895. And this is a direct quote from that speech. Booker T. Washington states, Our greatest danger... Is that in the great leap from slavery to freedom, we may overlook the fact that the masses of us are to live by the productions of our hands, and fail to keep in mind that we shall prosper in proportion as we learn to dignify and glorify common labor, and put brains and skill into the common occupations of life, shall prosper. In proportion, as we learn to draw the line between the superficial and the substantial, no race can prosper till it learns that there is as much dignity in tilling a field as in writing a poem. It is at the bottom of life we must begin and not at the top, nor should we permit our grievances to overshadow our opportunities.
0: You know, I think that's an interesting story and maybe a cautionary tale with people who perhaps take education for granted today, and the cost of college education and people not going to trade schools, that last quote about tilling the land and, and taking pride in that as well is, um, is key. Any any skill set that you can develop is, is a big deal, and look what they had to do in order to acquire it back then. I think some of the educational opportunities are taken for granted in today's day and age.
1: Yes, you know, I I definitely agree with you. And, And I think Booker T. Washington, you know, he walks those hundreds of miles not knowing if he was going to be accepted. And he sees the importance of it. And further down in that speech, you know, he basically says, don't look to the north to gain what you need. Cast down your buckets where you are. Work to better yourself. Improve your surroundings. Prove your ability. Now, you have to understand that was for the time period. You know, today, if somebody said that to a group of people, it would not go over well. You know, you have to prove your ability. We have to wait. We have to kind of ease in. But he's in this mindset of it's more important for us to be able to earn a dollar as opposed to where we are able to spend that dollar. So the white members of the audience a former slave, a black man, an educated black man. He's giving this speech, a very well-spoken black man. You know, this was not something that white Southerners saw every day. And he addresses them directly within the speech too. And he encouraged the hiring of blacks as opposed to hiring newly arrived European immigrants. And he states, and again, this is another direct quote from that speech, As we have proved our loyalty to you in the past in nursing your children, watching by the sick bed of your mothers and fathers, and often following with them with tear-dimmed eyes to their graves, so in the future, in our humble way, we shall stand with you with a devotion that no foreigner can approach, ready to lay down our lives, if need be, in defense of yours, interlacing our industrial, commercial, civil, and religious life with yours in a way that shall make the interests of both races one. In all things that are purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. So he's giving this message to white America as well, and he's saying, I'm not looking to rock the boat. We can still be separated, but we can still belong on the same hand. We can still be educated and not pose a threat to you. So think of Booker T. Washington's perspective as being economic self-help. He points out the perspective that the majority of white Americans in the South and in the North held in regards to equality, to desegregation, education, Um, employment opportunities, voting rights, just to name a few of the obstacles that were put before black Americans. Even Darwin's theory of evolution helped to embolden racist views. He recognized the difficulties black Americans faced and says, don't worry about that now. We, we as a people, we as a group, we need to focus on bettering ourselves first we need to focus on educating ourselves and our youth. We need to focus on providing for ourselves, to own land, to build a home, to learn, to learn how to farm, to learn skills that will allow us to earn a wage. Social advancement was more important to him than securing you know, civil or political rights. And he felt that through industrial and vocational training, black Americans could improve their lives. Now, you also have a number of critics of Booker T. Washington, some black, some white critics. And, you know, there were some black Americans who viewed his politics as being dangerous. Booker T. Washington wrote his first of many books, Up From Slavery, in 1901, Now, while he advocated for vocational training and spoke out against agitating for full political and civil rights, Booker T. Washington did quietly help to fund court cases that would help to bring an end to segregation and limits of voting rights. He was an advisor to U.S. presidents and a leader within the black American community until his death. For people who aren't, you know, history aficionados, as we would say, right? They don't know that Booker T. Washington was supported financially later on in life by Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie donated money for a library to be built on the campus and later sent an endowment of $600,000 for the Tuskegee Institute, stipulating that money be set aside to provide for both Booker T. Washington and his wife so that they were provided for and could dedicate their time to their mission. At the end of a letter Carnegie wrote, and this is a direct quote from that letter, history is to tell of two Washingtons, one white, the other black both fathers of their people. And I love that quote. He helped to found the National Negro Business League with help of donations from Andrew Carnegie. Um, The purpose was to promote the development of both black-owned businesses and communities, and it was renamed the National Business League and still exists today. Washington also helped to create and support thousands of schools for black children throughout the South. Booker T. Washington became ill while in New York on a fundraising campaign. He was brought back to Atlanta at his own request, knowing that he would most likely not survive the trip back down South. He died on November 14, 1915. After his death, his wife recounted that her husband told her he was born in the South, he lived in the South, And he would die and be buried in the South. He was buried on the Tuskegee Campus Cemetery. Now, unlike Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois was born after the Civil War in the North. And just from the get-go, you can see that they're going to be looking at the situation of Black Americans through a very different lens. W.E.B. Du Bois was born on February 23rd, 1868 in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. The Du Bois Center in Great Barrington is a great resource for understanding his early years. He grew up in a small, mostly white town that had not just an elementary school, but a high school as well. While he had more opportunities to learn than Booker T. Washington, life was not easy. His father left the family when they were young and his mother was sickly after suffering a stroke and she died shortly after his high school graduation. He was fortunate that members of his community helped him to afford the extra books he needed to prepare for college. W.E.B. Du Bois worked a variety of odd jobs to earn money, and he also worked very hard at his studies. In 1885, he studied at Fisk College in Tennessee, which was created just after the end of the Civil War. It was while in Tennessee teaching elementary school, he witnessed Jim Crow laws for the first time. For two summers, he taught 30 children in a small shanty room, that was once used to store corn. In his book, The Souls of Black Folks, he talked about the time he spent teaching there and the clear differences between how he attended school in the North and how his students learned in the South. He would go on to study at Harvard for his master's degree, and he was the first African American to earn a PhD there in 1909. During his time at Harvard, he had the opportunity to study abroad in Berlin with the help of the Slater Fund. He repeatedly wrote and appealed to the chairman of the fund, former President Rutherford B. Hayes, the same man whose election in 1877 through the Compromise of 1877 ended Reconstruction, The Slater Fund was a scholarship created by John Fox Slater through a $1 million endowment. He was a descendant of John Slater, Samuel Slater's brother, who had become very wealthy as a New England mill owner, making shoddy cloth, also known as Negro cloth. That was the material that was used to produce Um, clothing for enslaved people, blankets even. It was a very rough coarse material. It was an inexpensive cloth made from wool and cotton scraps. He also made a significant amount of money through the contracts he received during the Civil War. That money not only helped W.E.B. Du Bois, but also George Washington Carver. And it helped to fund a number of historically black colleges and universities. And if you're interested in, you know, on this topic, you can definitely go back and listen to our podcast on the Industrial Revolution, where we talk more about that. There is a wonderful New York Post article from September of 2019, written by a woman by the name of Louisa Beck, on W.E.B. Du Bois's experience in Germany in 1892. In it, Beck stated the following. For Du Bois, however, Europe in the late 19th century offered a refuge from the United States, a place where he witnessed institutionalized segregation and violence against black people daily. The unity beneath all life clutched me, he wrote in his autobiography. I felt myself standing not against the world, but simply against American narrowness and color prejudice, with the greater, finer world at my back. His experience in Germany changed the way he viewed life for black Americans in the United States. It is something that Du Bois wrote about in his many works. Du Bois was a lifelong learner and a scholar. He would write hundreds of essays and over 20 books, his most famous being The Souls of Black Folks, which is excellent. So, yes, he was an educator, a great speaker, an editor, and a writer, but he was also a sociologist. He briefly taught ancient and modern language at Wilberforce University and then went on to work at the University of Pennsylvania, where he conducted research on the 7th Ward of of Philadelphia. Where he conducted research on the 7th Ward of Philadelphia. He went door to door to interview people. From that work came his 1899 study, The Philadelphia Negro. The work, which was really the first of its kind, discussed the variety of social problems that existed within that African-American community. Within his research, he concluded that the only way to solve these problems was for whites and blacks to work together to change the perception of black Americans in American society. Gil DeLerman Institute has some great information on this. His next teaching job brought him to Atlanta University, where he spent the next 10 years of his life teaching history, economics, and built up what would become one of the best sociology departments in the country. During this time, this is when he writes The Souls of Black Folks in 1903, and he helps to found both the Niagara Movement and the NAACP. So think about all that he accomplished in those 10 years, all those incredible things that he accomplished. In 1900, Du Bois helped to curate an exposition for the World's Columbian Exposition, which was held in Paris that year. Photographs of African-American families, schools, specialty classes, everyday activities showcasing life within the African-American community coupled with data showing the population growth, you know, advancements of African-American families from the Civil War to present day and vast volumes of writings from authors. So he's trying to create a picture of who black Americans were as a people showing this is where we have been, this is where we are now, and these are the areas where we're also being limited if you read between the lines. In opposition to Booker T. Washington's push for an industrial education, W.E.B. Du Bois instead stressed the importance of a formal and classical education, that if the best and brightest of the African-American community, or what he referred to as the talented 10th, became educated and went on to become leaders of the community, it would go on to benefit the entire African-American community. While at first W.E.B. Du Bois supported Booker T. Washington, he went on to become one of his biggest critics. The Niagara Movement in 1905 was started by two critics of Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois and William Monroe Trotter, who organized a conference in Canada near Niagara Falls, where they set out to do the work necessary to bring about political and social equality for black Americans. While this initial group didn't achieve their goals, it paved the way for the creation of the NAACP. In 1909, Du Bois helped to found the National Advancement for the Association of Colored People, otherwise known as the NAACP, along with both black you know, white, male, female activists, um, even Ida B. Wells. If you don't know much about the NAACP and the work that they have done and continue to do, please go to NAACP.org to find out more. Through the court system and nonviolent protests, the NAACP helped to break down Jim Crow laws and to work towards political and social equality. W.E.B. Du Bois believed that they had to agitate, that they couldn't sit idly by and wait to be given equality. In 1911, the NAACP issued its official mission statement, and this is a direct quote from their mission statement, to promote equality of rights and to eradicate caste or race prejudice among the citizens of the United States, To advance the interests of colored citizens, to secure for them impartial suffrage, and to increase their opportunities for securing justice in the courts, education for children, employment according to their ability, and complete equality before law. In the post-World War I years, Dr. Du Bois supported the Pan-Africanism movement, Organizing a number of pan-African congresses throughout the years, he, along with many others, called for an end to the practice of colonialism by European powers. He hoped to see a united Africa with countries controlled by Africans. His outspoken stance on nuclear weapons and his strong criticisms got him in trouble with the United States government in the post-World War II era. In 1951, he was tried and acquitted of being an agent of of a foreign country. So if you know your U.S. history, you know the 1950s in America is in the midst of a Red Scare, very much anti-communist. So just the subtle suggestion that one was a communist sympathizer was enough to ruin one's career, which it did for many people, including Dr. Du Bois. He would travel to Russia, to China in the late 1950s, and he continued to speak out against nuclear weapons and in support of civil rights for African Americans. He joined the Communist Party in 1961, and that same year, at the invitation of President Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, He went at the age of 93 to go and live with his second wife in Ghana, where he remained for two years until his death. Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois died at the age of 95 on August 27, 1963, the very same day as Dr. King's famous march on Washington, a march he had called for decades earlier. His death received very little fanfare in the United States, but he received a state funeral in Ghana. A country that he had become a citizen of just a few months earlier. When you look at the lives and the work of these two men and the impact that they had on future civil rights activists, the impact that they had on American society, after Reconstruction ended so abruptly, it was up to Black Americans and Black Americans alone to protect their communities from Jim Crow laws, from segregation to lift themselves up out of poverty and to provide opportunity to create and support historically black colleges and universities that were beacons of hope. At a time where segregation, a separation of the races that was inherently unequal, these two men who had very different approaches each tried to better the world in which they lived.
0: Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.